Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 33 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 15th of September. And Leon, this week we're talking to Tony Loxton. That's right. Tony Loxton's going to be talking to us about his company Blix, which uh, measures foot traffic and increases insight and accountability for sales and and marketing departments in the retail and automotive industries. Just goes to show that more and more we're being sort of watched, aren't we? That's right. But it's it's very useful and very useful for comments. And then after that, we have a Stephen Kukoulos with a really interesting point of view. That's right. And he's going to be talking to us all about the issues occurring with AGL and the government. Yes, and that uh, looks like being one of the biggest brawls that has ever happened. And... If comment is right, the government ain't winning it. No, they're not. So now, Leon, let's listen to Tony Loxton. Tony Loxton, tell us about Blix and your foot traffic analysis, this software you've developed. Our product is called Blix Traffic, and uh, essentially what we do is we overlay a Wi-Fi network and we measure smartphone movements. So, you know, in a lot of cases, we install a network on behalf of the client or they might already have one in place um, and we just overlay our software on top of that. And then anyone who's carrying a smartphone in their pocket that is, has Wi-Fi turned on and the reason you'd know if Wi-Fi is turned on is if when you go home in the evening, your phone automatically connects to your home network, then what, what you may or may not know is that all day long it's looking for Wi-Fi networks. Okay, now when your phone does that, it's, it, we, the, the term for that is it's sending a ping looking for a Wi-Fi network. Our system listens for that, collects that data, and then we report on it and interpret it back to the client. And so what we can do is we can tell you how many people entered a particular space that the Wi-Fi network covers. Uh, we can tell you how often they've been there, how long they spend there. You know, if we see them in other locations with other networks we have, things like that. So going on from that, do you also um, access iBeacons where they're in stores and things like that? We, With this particular product, we don't, but we do have the capability to do that. But there's a big difference between beacons and what we do. So beacons require the customer or the, or the person to have an app on their phone that communicates with the beacons. The beauty of the technology that we have is that the customer doesn't need to do anything. And you know, I'll also stipulate, we don't collect a single bit of personal information. So there's no privacy issues here. Um, all we're doing is measuring anonymous movement of people okay and so the benefit of our technology is is that the customer doesn't need to do anything which means that we measure nearly all the people in the space whereas beacons typically will get you know whatever uh, downloads of apps they have which quite often is less than one percent of your customer base so we'll typically measure between 70 and 80 percent of your customer base and those are the people with smartphones in pockets that have wi-fi turned on so but but does it operate in supermarkets or not Generally, we don't uh, run our system in supermarkets, and that's because the benefit that our software provides is really to improve the operations of a, of a business. So we obviously work in retail a lot, but we work typically in retail where uh, the salesperson is influential in, in the sale. Okay, So when you walk into a supermarket, you generally know what you're going to buy, and you walk in, you purchase it, and you know how many staff they have on and what the customer experience is like is not actually that important in determining whether you go to that supermarket or not. You're actually just going there to buy something. Whereas on the flip side, if you go 
going to a jewelry store, a fashion store, a furniture store, you know, things like that. The experience that you have with the salesperson is highly influential in whether you buy a product and then how much you buy or how, how many items you, you know, you purchase. So that's where our software is really beneficial to a retailer because we can measure how long you spend there. We can determine whether the salespeople are following their training. We can determine, you know, if they have the optimal number of staff on, you know, because a, a classic uh, thing that, you know, retail is always under pressure to reduce costs. So, you know, one of the simplest way to do that is to reduce your salespeople. Well, that might not necessarily be the best result for your for your business's profit because, you know, saving money on sales might actually mean that you're, you're losing a lot of money on revenue. But this would not only apply to shops, it could also apply to, say, car yards, real estate agents as well, couldn't it? That's right. We, we do a lot of work in, in cars, uh, in car dealerships. Um, not so much real estate agents, but we work um, quite a lot with uh, particularly uh, housing developments. So where you'd go out and see display homes uh, and there's sales offices and things like that because we can measure the foot traffic through the display village. We can measure how many uh, people visit the sales office after they've walked through the display. Uh, we can also measure the sales conversion rates of the salespeople within the display villages, things like that. In that event, if somebody's walking into a jeweler shop can you also determine whether they buy a swatch or a rolex no we can't so like i said our our data is completely anonymous okay so what we do is we look at the uh, typically with a retailer is we will look at their point of sale data and their staff rostering data and we'll ingest that into our system and we'll work out what the sweet spots are so what i mean by that is let's say for example the point of sale data and our, and our customer foot traffic data tells us that on average to get the best point of sale result, i.e. the highest revenue in that particular hour, people are spending on average 15 minutes in the store. Right. We'll then look at your staff rosters and work out, well, how many people are serving those customers to get that result? And then we'll be able to advise you, well, actually on Fridays at lunchtime, you're horribly understaffed. Okay, You've got a staff to customer ratio that it, that means that it's impossible for the staff to spend more than five minutes with each customer. In which case, what typically happens is they spend 15 and two customers walk out the door who were actually going to buy. So that's kind of how it works. That makes so sense. that would influence staffing in a, a boutique store right up to quite a big shop. Yeah, we, we work with big box retail as well that have you know uh, lots of staff on the floor um, and uh, yeah it works in all those environments so the the line will be drawn say no supermarkets probably not a bunnings or a whatever maybe i don't know i think there's actually a great application in bunnings because you know how many times have you walked around bunnings looking for a staff member to, to assist you yeah and you know that's not to say that the customer service is not fantastic but you know there definitely is a requirement in bunnings what i'm saying is there's a requirement to quite often get help from a salesperson so where i would say it's not so effective is where that isn't the case like a supermarket that raises an interesting point for me because i go to bunnings a lot always the same store and i have made friends with three or four people people who are there when I'm there and that has improved the experience enormously and I don't know if you could identify that sort of relationship that's built. No typically not I mean we do um, have the ability to I guess you know understand the number of staff in there but again it's all unidentified data that we work with. Now you also do uh, analysis of advertising and media ROI, don't you? Yeah, that's right. We have a product called Blix TV. Um, essentially, what that does is it measures the second screening behavior. So what I mean by that is uh, these days, I think the latest statistic that came out a few months ago said that about 83% of people when watching television are, are doing so with an, a, a laptop or an iPad or a phone within reach. And so they are, whilst watching TV, also interacting with one of those devices. Now, if you see an advertisement on TV that you know entices 
forces you to then look it up online, we measure that correlation. So we're able to tell advertisers, uh, you know, which of their different versions of TV ads are working better, which regions are better, which networks provide them with a better ROI. Because what we quite often find is uh, whilst there is definitely value in having an advertisement in a really high rating show that millions of people are watching, quite often those people are so engaged in the show, they're not actually paying much attention to the advertising. Whereas when you look at a show that, that maybe is a rerun, okay, that's been on TV before, like a sitcom or something like that, wouldn't cost so much, it's on one of the digital channels that you know there's a large ROI attached to that kind of advertising as well. So processing the data is a crucial task. Do you handle that here? Yeah, we do all of the work in-house. So you've got data specialists, data scientists working? Yes, we do. A bunch of people much cleverer than myself. Um, they do a lot of data crunching. I think at the moment we deal with, on our traffic product, we deal with, uh, I think it's about 150 million records of data a week. That's impressive. Um, yes, our Amazon bill's pretty high. <laughs> that, that, that is enormous. Yeah, it's, and it grows every week, you know, every time we install new customers or we're going into locations these days uh, that are much busier. You know, a lot of, we're doing a lot of kind of infrastructure and transport work um, and, you know, the, the volume of people in those spaces is quite high. So there's a lot of data. So your data could measure the health of the economy. Uh, look, it can absolutely give you a you know a lead indicator as to how retail's going and how you know the automotive sector's going. You know any industry that we're in, absolutely. So, which industries do you cover? Look, our key ones would be um, retail for sure. Uh, automotive's big for us as well. Um, we're getting more and more into infrastructure and transport. Uh, we also work in tourism, uh, property, like I mentioned before. Those would be the key ones. And looking ahead in the future, I mean, this software and your expertise could be moved into various other places, couldn't you? You got any where you might go from here? To be honest, when we started building this software about five years ago, I, I would never have dreamed that we would be doing what we're doing today. Um, so that that's happened to me, you know, probably 20 times in the last five years. Um, and the most recent advent of that would be the transport and infrastructure side of things. Yeah. Um, you know, we're measuring public spaces and, you know, when, when the government decides they want to do a, a, a redesign of a public space um you know we we get a we get a call and we go and measure how people are using that space i mean i, I didn't see that one coming so we have a few of those that are unproven at the moment but yeah there's certainly new things coming at us all the time yeah say autonomous cars would affect that a little bit too they could potentially and that's an area that we're just starting to dabble in not so much autonomous but you know traffic measurement on, yeah, on roads yeah and they, they're connected the whole point of them is the communication absolutely so you are just starting to measure traffic on roads as well yes that's right you know another area is you know measuring the effectiveness of outdoor signage and billboards you know how do they drive customers into retail stores that kind of thing whether it works yeah that's so you've got a really good cross-section it's like a, a brain scan of the population isn't it yeah it, it does tell us some fascinating things you know one of our one of the fun things with our data that we interrogate is is when we look across our customer base you know we can see things like life-changing events for example so you know typically what we'll see is that when someone starts looking for a house generally they're also looking for a car very often and a couple of months later we'll see them in furniture stores um, now we don't of course don't know who that person is but we know that that pattern we're seeing continuously so there's some really interesting things that you know the data is starting to reveal on a big picture macro level and because it's a mobile phone it's actually pertinent to that particular phone and everyone yeah. has their own phone that's right wi-fi is a wonderful thing <laughs> now, yeah. now you're you're based in melbourne uh, are you around australia 
Yeah, well, we have another office in Sydney, um, and um, so that's just it for Australia. We, you know, we service the rest of the country through you know a, a team that flies around the country, and then we have some offices overseas. Are you looking at expanding overseas? Absolutely, yeah. We're we're working pretty actively in quite a few markets overseas. Really? So, which markets are you? Ever- well, we we're focused on uh, Europe and the UK, obviously, um, and uh, the US. We're also getting uh, some traction in in Africa at the moment. So, yeah, we're expanding as much as we can. Very exciting. Very exciting. Tony Loxon, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Well, it's pretty interesting. I guess if you're going to trade in the online economy, you're going to need data like that. Absolutely. And uh, retailers are going to absolutely need that sort of stuff. So now Stephen Kukoulos and the government latest battle. Stephen Kukoulos, uh, the government is trying to force AGL to keep its unprofitable power plant open. What's your view about this? Oh, look, dreadful policy. Um, the approach to uh, providing enough energy and power for Australian businesses, for Australian consumers, clearly is an important issue. But private sector firms are making their decisions on how to provide that uh, power, at what price they should charge businesses and consumers based on the economic merits of each of each uh, way that the power is generated, be it through coal, uh, wind, solar, gas, whatever, hydro even. So, look, the problem that I think the government's got is that it's a very poor approach to energy policy and the dismantling of the carbon price a few years ago, its inability to fund alternative sources of energy at a time when the economy is growing and expanding and population's increasing, has left it quite naked and um, now it's floundering around sort of leaning on private sector companies listed on the stock markets whose motivation is to maximise the return for shareholders um, is is just crazy policy. It, it, it's it's going to end in tears, I think, for the government. But uh, the government is backing away from uh, Alan Finkel's uh, clean energy target and moving towards uh, something of clean coal. Well, and again, that's part of the problem. It's all ideologically driven rather than fact-based. And I think that's the concern and the pickle that they've got themselves into. I've been watching this issue sort of globally unfold for many, many years and other countries that are confronted, I guess, by similar circumstances through, you know, growth and higher population and increased demand for electricity have encouraged the use of renewables, that they've actually had subsidies and assistance to renewables while they're still relatively expensive. Um, But we all know, and this is the sort of very simple proposition that I think the government ignores, is that in 20, 30 years, the bulk of the global output, certainly in the industrialised world and certainly here in Australia, will be renewables. Let's accelerate that process now rather than relying on the 50-year-old, inefficient, dirty coal uh, electricity-producing uh, enterprise that we've got. And AGL realised that. That's why they're closing it down in 2022. So they realise that they've got to move on and uh, increasingly supply their consumers with uh, electricity generated by other means. But the government seems to be ideologically opposed to that. And I think that's the problem. It's ideology over economics. Wouldn't it be creating energy uncertainty in the marketplace? As I think I said at the very beginning, yeah, we do need enough energy to power businesses and housing at peak demand like when you know when it's hot and everyone's got their air conditioning on and businesses are uh, also continuing to use their power to, to just do their normal day-to-day functioning of course we, we know how much electricity is needed at peak times uh, the question's got to be for the from a government policy perspective with the uh, help of business is where's that energy going to be generated from and the fact that we don't have guidance at the national level is is part of the concern you know and even in you know little old south australia with their battery storage yeah a 
bold decision. Yes, it costs a bit of money, but I think people would be happy to spend a little bit of money if it ensured power certainty whenever they wanted to turn on their air conditioning and their lights. If we were to just sort of fast track the alternatives to take over the inevitable uh, closure of these coal-fired uh, power generating uh, platforms that exist now. Of course, uh, AGL uh, says it wants to turn the uh, Liddell power station into a clean energy hub on a gas-fired. Uh, Indeed, and, and that, that begs another question, where's the gas coming from, given that we've got the commitment, and this is a bipartisan problem, I suppose, both parties are guilty of, of uh, mucking this one up, but so to the extent that we've got the reallocation of some of the gas to domestically, that's a good thing, great, that's an important part of generating our uh, our electricity needs uh, over the next little while anyway, and that's fine, and that's, I, I would guess, a relatively short-term solution, but when you look at what's happening globally, look what's happening in other industrialised countries or even emerging market economies, the pace at which they are moving to renewables is absolutely staggering. We've got plenty of land to put solar panels, plenty of area to stick up wind uh, farms and plenty of areas to put batteries, which are increasingly getting efficient as we're seeing in South Australia. So the strategy is not going to be pumping money into you know the coal fired and even gas to some extent. That, that's better, but you know it's really got to be on the renewable side. And I'm, I'm surprised the government well, uh, isn't perhaps moving faster down that track. Well, it seems that the impetus seems to be coming from state governments. You've got Victoria setting up solar plants to uh, run the trams here, and you've got South Australia doing their thing as well. And in Queensland and here, well, as well. I happen to be in Canberra uh, in the ACT, and the ACT is now fully 2018, 2019. So in the next two years, um, there's 410-odd thousand people here in uh, in Canberra fully reliant on renewables. Every bit of skerrick of power for business, for consumers, for households, for the public service will be renewable so they can do it why can't that approach be rolled out and look it's not going to be fixed overnight it, yeah, there is a time lag involved and there is a cost involved to be sure but in a time when the state governments south australia as you mentioned in victoria are leading with their push to renewables and 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 the power companies have embraced it too that's the other thing to note too uh, the power companies know what's happening you look at some of the big oil producers most of their businesses now are in alternative energy sources for, for cars and things like that so, and engines and these sorts of things so the big companies know it globally it's just that our federal government's stuck with the doctrinal position of some people in the party and um, and that's what's causing this concern it's really poor poor politics and ideology that's really hurting business and in fact as we saw just yesterday in the NAB business survey while business conditions are okay business confidence taken a big hit so businesses are now starting to react to this and thinking well you know if this is going on I don't have a lot of confidence in my ability to expand my business well that that's the point I just wanted to raise now because that NAB survey that that very struck me because the NAB actually said a lot of this was because of government policies and for that I read yes. what's happening with energy yes it was it, the, the if you looked at the reason why businesses confidence levels have taken a bit of a hit the, the issues that they identified were government policies and energy costs and energy reliability that were their two main areas of concern so when you when you think about that from uh, for another moment and we've got this ongoing debate that's not going to be fixed quickly this is going to be a lingering issue for for some time and particularly over the summer month uh where we will run into the risk i'll call it of blackouts and concerns there businesses and you know, consumers are going to be annoyed but businesses who have got to be able to run their machinery equipment their freezers their chilling facilities all this stuff they've got to be able to do that or else they're not going to make a buck and that's the concern that i think the business sector's got both big and medium and small sized businesses and of course the energy costs keep rising and 
there are warnings now that many businesses are going to go at bust because of it. Well, the ones that have got a lot of energy intensity, as we mentioned, yeah, the ones that are reliant on chilling and freezing, so a lot in the agriculture, seafood sort of industries, the ones that are involved in um, you know the manufacturing sector with the automation, elect- electrically driven things that have a higher cost base through their power consumption, they're the ones that are suffering you know, 10, 20, 30% increases in their electricity bills at a time when we know that inflation stuck at you know, 1.5% to 2%. So they're not getting the pricing power. They're not able to pass on these higher costs. So they're so by definition, their margins are being squeezed. So that's the concern uh, that I think is going to be there for, for some of those businesses. And the, again, it's something the government knows about, but they're relying on um, on their powers of persuasion and bad-mouthing AGL to try to fix the problem. The fact that they're bad-mouthing AGL sends a very bad signal to business too, doesn't it? It, it does. And at a time when they're put on the bank tax uh, and they're sort of regulating other parts of the economy, the business sector, which you know, has finally, you know, we, again, looking at the hard economic data for just a moment, we saw the CapEx numbers a week or two ago, hinting that there could be a turning point, And that's terrific news. You know, it's a long overdue part of the economy, the missing link has been more optimism in the uh, private sector business investment. If this is nipped in the bud through these sorts of things that we've just been discussing and business confidence being eroded by this inability of the government to work out what it's actually doing with power, what it's doing with reliability and even the cost of electricity, then the risk is once we get into the into the new year or over the summer months uh, in, in the short term, that businesses are going to be even more uh, disillusioned. And when that's the case, that lift in business investment uh, expectations that we're seeing could very quickly reverse. And indeed, uh, what that means too is that GDP last week was running at about 1.8%, which is okay, but it puts us below the United States. It puts us below the rate of growth in Canada. It puts us below the rate of growth in New Zealand. Given all of that, it would indicate that uh, if business loses confidence, we're going to have an even lower GDP figure coming up. And, and that's the concern going forward. I've in the last little while I've been speaking to the likes of Bill Evans from Westpac, Alan Oster from NAB, and they're both you know, very level-headed sort of economists. They're looking at their economic forecasts into 2018. So here we are just a few months from 2018 kicking off. And you know, their clients and their, their modelling sort of looking at the next year for economic output. And they're already noting that next year is probably going to be a little bit softer for the economy. We know that housing is cooling, both in terms of new construction activity. We know that prices appear to be moderating. They're still high, of course, don't get me wrong, but they are moderating, it appears. And then amongst that, we've got the, the household sector, you know, we consumers being pretty tight with our spending because we're not getting much in the way of wage increases. So there are some smart people out there that saying the economy into 2018 is already going to continue this sluggish growth. You know, not a recession, but just that we don't get decent growth. And the risk is if businesses start to sort of pare back on some of their recent optimism that all of a sudden you do get a scenario where 2018 might not be a particularly good one for the economy. Stuka Coolis, it's always wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I I think there's an issue when the government run by the party of free enterprise set up by Robert Menzies is trying to force a company to keep open an unprofitable business. And yeah. uh, I think Robert Menzies would be rolling in his grave. Absolutely. And so are most of the commentators on the thing. They're trying to, they're trying to Sovietize AGL, for goodness sake. Well, yes. Yeah, so why don't you just uh, nationalise the yeah. energy industry and go to energy rationing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, the basic point is that coal is no longer profitable. That's right. And uh, AGL, what AGL wants to do with the Liddell site is turning it into a clean energy hub uh, powered by gas. B- boost up 
up solar and wind and renewables, all of which are now cheaper than trying to build a coal station. That's right. But don't tell the Queenslanders that because they like to log, uh, flog coal. That's right. Now, the news. Well, Gary, the mammoth US economy is not easy to slow down, but the damage caused by hurricanes Irma and Harvey could reduce growth by as much as one third, according to analysts. Before the back-to-back hurricane struck, the economy appeared on track to expand as much as 3% in the third quarter, running from July through to September. But now, forecasts are pointing to gross domestic product increasing around 2% or even less. And if the US economy were a car, uh, the effect of the hurricanes would be to lower the speed to 40 miles an hour from 60, which is not terrible, but it's a blow nonetheless. The aftershocks will linger for some time. The densely populated Houston region, heavily damaged by flooding, represents about 2.5% of the US economy. The state of Florida, all of which was exposed to Irma, constitutes about 5% of US economic activity. The most obvious trouble will come in the form of properties destroyed, businesses closed, and many people being unable to work. Some areas might not be restored for months. More broadly, the damage to key energy producing and refining operations in the Houston region may keep gasoline prices from falling as much as they usually do after the end of the summer driving season. And that will also raise costs for consumers and other businesses not in the path of the storms. And based on similar damage from major storms since World War II, Goldman Sachs cut its estimate of third quarter US growth to 2% from 2.8% and consumers spending, home construction and energy production are the most likely areas to be hampered. That's a very heavy cut in percentage terms, isn't it, Leon? That's right, and it will affect the US economy. So let's just watch that space. Now, the other interesting piece of news, Gary, is that the prospect of Brexit has taken another step forward, with British MPs passing the May government's flagship EU withdrawal bill. The legislation transposing EU law on the UK's domestic books was passed by 36 votes in the early hours of Tuesday morning, with seven Labor MPs backing the government. And it came after a spirited debate where many MPs, including Conservatives, raised feelings about the bill's shortcomings. The debate saw the more than 100 MPs getting up to have their say. Now, the big concern about the bill is the way it gives the government the power to make changes to laws during this process without consulting MPs. The government claims it needs to be able to make the technical changes to ensure there is a smooth transition. And the bill actually overturns the 1972 European Communities Act, which took the UK into the European Economic Community. But it's not the end there, Gary, because the contentious legislation now faces its bigger challenge. It's going to be put through line-by-line scrutiny in its committee stage. Very painful. It's a process that I would have thought. So just watch that space. But anyway, it's a step closer to Brexit. And that's a bit of a worry for a lot of people. That's right. Now, to Australia, and in a worrying sign about whether the property market will have a soft landing, investment bank UBS has released a report showing that Australian banks could be sitting on 500 billion of so-called liar loans and these are loans based on inaccurate financial information leaving the banks more vulnerable to a housing downturn than many people think. According to the UBS survey of 907 people who took out a home loan in 2017, two out of three or 67% said their mortgage was completely factual and accurate. That compares with 72% in 2016. In other words, one out of three had not given the bank factually correct information. And, of course, the bank hadn't checked anything. That's right. That's right. And so the survey found the most common inaccuracies were overstating income and understating living expenses. And UBS analysts say this has worrying implications for the banks in the event of a housing downturn, as people holding mortgages will be more stretched than banks believe, and that implies losses in a downturn could be larger than the banks anticipate. Mm, That rumbling noise you can hear is heads rolling. So watch that space. That's going to be very alarming. 
coming. Now, Australian consumer confidence fell 3.8% last week, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. The latest figures reverse two weeks of improvement. Consumers' views towards current and future economic conditions slipped 8.1% and 7.2% respectively. The average of these two measures, households' confidence in the economic outlook, has fallen to its lowest level in 16 weeks, and the time to buy a major household item index fell by a massive 7.6% last week, down to the lowest level in almost two years. And the economists are saying that that's because of wages growth is not budging at all. No, it's, it's still under inflation. Now, business confidence has slipped sharply on the back of government policies and rising energy and wages cost crimping margins, according to the latest NAB monthly business survey. And despite healthy business conditions, business confidence levels clipped dipped seven points to five, falling below its long-term average for the first time since mid-2016. On the other hand, business conditions at their highest level since the global financial crisis and moved one point higher to 15, now well above the long-term average, sitting at the highest level since early 2008. And uh, the big concern about business from business is government policies, Gary. Indeed, as Stephen Kukoulos has pointed out. Now, while we're on Stephen Kukoulos, let's take a look at what's happening with AGL. Now, AGL Chief Executive Andy Vasey has been given 90 days to prepare a plan for the future of the Liddell Power Station in New South Wales. Following a meeting with the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg in Parliament, Vasey agreed to take proposals to the AGL board and respond within 90 days on whether it will keep the coal-fired power station open or sell it to another operator. And AGL had previously indicated it was committed to shutting down the power station in 2022. And its plans for the Liddell site could include wind and solar power and a battery farm. And this came after last week's warning from the Australian Energy Market market operation that the closure of Liddell could lead to blackouts. But Mr. Vasey indicated there were problems with Liddell. He said AGL had invested $123 million improving the reliability of Liddell since acquiring it from the New South Wales government in 2015, when the New South Wales government was privatising everything. And despite this investment, during the February 2017 heatwave, two units from Liddell were out of market due to unforeseeable boiler tube leaks. And as a result, there was not enough energy in the system, he said, and New South Wales experienced blackouts. He said that as Liddell approaches the end of its life in 2022, it will likely experience more unanticipated outages, which is why AGL will spend another $159 million to improve reliability there before it closes. To me, that's saying they're committed to shutting it down. Well, yeah, they, they'd have to be. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in this. I mean, for example, everybody says that closing Liddell will cost us 1,000 megawatts. The damn thing's never produced more than 500 that's megawatts. Right. That's right. That's right. You know, and then to say you're going to spend another $150 million to keep this... 50-year-old, never-efficient power station running is stupid. Well, the issue is the New South Wales government sold it with a view of getting in more money. They weren't looking at things like the reliability of it. No, not at all. And in fact, if you look at that sale, the amount of money they had to give AGL to, to twist their arm, the actual cost of little was nothing. That's right. Yeah. Goodness gracious, what, what's going on? That's right. Now, the other related part of this is that the coalition government will walk away from the clean energy target outlined by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel. And the government will instead deliver a plan that relies heavily on coal-fired power and a slower transition to renewable. The government is considering shifting the emissions baseline from 0.6 to 0.7 tonnes of carbon per megawatt hour, allowing high-efficiency coal plants to gain credits. And a group of backbench MPs, including Tony Abbott, is pushing against any clean energy target with Abbott telling the party room that a CET on top of the 23.5% renewable energy target would be, in his words, a difficult position to sustain. Yeah, so all of these empty-headed politicians are throwing out a 
very, very expert report by the chief scientists. Yeah. All because Tony Abbott wants to wreck Australia. And he's got an agenda. Absolutely. He wants to, he wants to mur- mur- politically murder Al- Malcolm Turnbull. Indeed. And in another sign of friction between the government and business, Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce has made a personal donation of $1 million for the Yes campaign for same-sex marriage. The money is coming out of his own pocket, not from Qantas shareholders, and the amount donated represents half of Mr Joyce's annual base pay of $2.1 million and amounts to 8% of his total remuneration last year of $13 million. Mr Joyce has already indicated his support for same-sex marriage changes and when announcing the Qantas results last month he said he would be making contribution to the campaign and other business leaders supporting same-sex marriage include Australia's richest man Anthony Pratt and AGL chief executive Andy Vasey and Coca-Cola is also putting a splash of the rainbow sign on its cans. The big loser is Australia because this will set one group against the other in a very very nasty way because it involves religion and well, this is what it's doing already. Yeah. This is what it, this is what happens when you have a plebiscite. You're going to have people up against each other, and there'll be violence, and it's not good. Not at all. good. Well, in fact, there has been some a little violence in the, some of these demonstrations already. That's right. And it can only get worse. Now, Australian investment bank Macquarie says it expects to deliver first half higher profits on the back of improved performance fees. In presentation notes for an investor conference in Hong Kong this week, the wealth management company said the group's results for financial year 18 will be broadly in line with financial year 2017, and it said its operating groups had performed in line with expectations in the first quarter. And that said, the group said its short-term outlook remains subject to market conditions, the impact of foreign exchange, and potential regulatory changes and tax uncertainties. But Macquarie's doing well. As usual, the millionaire's factory. And finally, Gary, there's some truth in the saying, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> Adani, which is now building its contentious $16.5 billion mine in Queensland Galilee Basin, has announced plans to build a $100 million solar farm in the coal territory of the Bowen Basin. And Adani says it's commenced preliminary work, including cultural heritage surveys and engineering design, and it's secured orders for critical equipment following approval by Isaac Regional Council. And work on the 65-megawatt rugby-run solar farm will begin by the end of the year. The solar farm stands in stark contrast to its coal mine, now hanging in the balance with the government's Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility considering loaning public money for the proposed rail link from the Adani coal mine in Queensland's Galilee Basin to the Abbott Point coal port near the Great Barrier Reef. And Adani, which is building the world's largest solar plant in India, says it plans to have a number of solar projects in Australia within the next five years, with a total capacity of 1,500 megawatts. It's expected to use the latest monoperk technology and single-axis tracking systems to improve efficiency and output. And the solar farm is expected to have a generation capacity of up to 170 megawatts. It's expected to generate 150 jobs for construction, six for operation, and construction work is expected to be completed within 12 months. That's at least perhaps a good idea, but you have to remember also that uh, Adani's debt is so great that no banks will lend it any money, and yet uh, there's talk of the uh, Northern Territory Infrastructure Fund being uh, asked. That's right to fund up maybe would not be a good idea and uh, that's it for us this week and next week we're talking to mike garrett and it's a great technology story there you can tune into us on twitter at talking or on facebook we'll look forward to talking to you next week